Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When a person experiences cognitive dissonance, that is, when they find themselves in a situation where exposure to conflicting ideas and information becomes too stressful or mentally uncomfortable, their natural inclination is to seek security in the safety of consonants. Humans naturally avoid, discredit, belittle, and delegitimize the ideas or people that cause them to experience dissonance. Today's most common reaction to natural dissonance, especially given the avalanche of information overload, is to bury one's head in the fantasy of suburban bliss. The rise in random acts of public violence is making this much harder, but the white picket fence crowd still manages to hold on to its illusions. Whether one buries their head in the sand to find peace or seeks out new beliefs or ideas that fit nicely with their own, when you reject dissonance, you seek to place your trust in something comforting a person or a group of people that looks and sounds like you. You trust those who reflect your values and attitudes, whatever makes you feel safe and secure. You know exactly what we call that in scripture. You know what they are and what happens to those who trust in them. On the other hand, scripture itself is divine dissonance. God challenges you to go against the grain of human thought by trusting his words, knowing full well you have no control over what comes out of his mouth. He will not say what you want, nor will his words or actions reflect your values or attitudes. He will often say exactly what you do not want to hear, as if he knows how to betray and embarrass you personally. Pretty cool for a book written by people who did not know you, and were not thinking about you, and could not possibly have conceived of the modern world when they wrote it. Like all of scripture, Luke liberates you from the fantasy of suburban bliss, where Herod's boot is firmly planted on your neck. He challenges you to unplug yourself from the matrix and accept life in the wilderness, out of your control, but in the palm of God's hand. Or, in verse 30, you could run from God's beloved shepherd toward Israel's beloved king. Good luck with that. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 30.
You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 485 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This society, because of social media, is overloaded with so much information. It's not just social media, it's the entire media landscape, Rich. And there's a kind of cognitive dissonance People just throw up their hands. They don't want to hear anything else. There's a refusal to listen. And we like to think that the situation is something new, that humanity has never experienced what is currently happening. But that's not true. Technology doesn't bring anything new. It just accelerates what's already there. It accelerates and amplifies what has already been true from the very beginning. In the example of social media, the things that we say, the things that we do, flaws in our character, egocentrism, vanity, our desire to hear our own opinions over others, our innate sense of self-righteousness. Long before we had social media, People in the Midwest were trying to suppress conversations about religion and politics at the dinner table because they understood there was a risk. We could easily slip into abusing each other because of these tendencies. There's nothing new under the sun. There was also an understanding in society generally of the risk associated with the free flow of ideas. That's why governments try to control information. It's just now because of the things that men build, that age-old tension between the free flow of information and the chaos associated with that and the desire to control information in order to provide security has been accelerated and amplified. The result is that people's need for security and their desire to find something to place their trust in is also amplified and accelerated. And it's harder for people to find something in which to place their trust. But that desire to place their trust in something is sinful because when human beings who feel overwhelmed by information, who feel that there's a lack of security, who feel threatened because there's so much information that undermines what they think and what they believe about the world because they're sick of being criticized, they're sick of all the disagreements, they're sick of conflicting information, they're sick of everyone crying wolf, they don't know what to think, what to believe, they don't understand what they hear anymore, they don't know who to trust, but they want to trust something. The sin in their desire to figure out what they should trust is that they're looking for safety. And the only lesson that they should learn in all of this is what Scripture has been teaching from day one. There is no safety in the wilderness. You're looking for security. 
And that is what causes the problem in the first place. You can see how much this cognitive dissonance comes about because of the massive information. I just saw an experiment yesterday in a group chat I'm in of Ukrainians. One person said, I'm going to do an experiment. How many words for a frying pan do you know are used in Ukraine? It was amazing because people say, my grandmother was from this town and she used this. My grandfather was from this town and said that. And there were five or six different words for frying pan. Now, for that grandmother, she grew up in a world where there was one word for frying pan. But if you traveled 200 miles away, there'd be a different word for frying pan. But now we live in a world where there are six words for frying pan. Instead of my religion and the religion of my neighbors, there is now literally all the religions on earth in front of my face. As a human being, I have a desire to create some kind of stability. Now, we're coming to a time where things happen that we never even conceived of, and now new things are happening. And so how do we keep things stable? We find the person who most reflects us, and we put our hope in them. Whether it's a political figure, or it's like in this genealogy, the son who you want to carry on the kingly line. When people look for something to trust, or when they say, I trust this person or I trust this thing, what they mean is, I have found something that either provides stability or something that I can control, or I have found something that is predictable. I want to make this clear. When you make the statement or rather, when scripture puts in your mouth the statement, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, you are being compelled, like Simon of Cyrene, to recite something that is making you place your trust in something that is not predictable and can't be controlled just by virtue of the fact that you don't have control over the words you're saying. When you place your trust in David, a human king, you are asking for something or someone, this human being that you trust that you think is like you, Rich, as you said just a moment ago, because you think you're placing your trust in someone that is predictable, that is like you, and that in some way, shape, or form, you can control or at least you understand what you're going to get from that person. It's a kind of agreement. If not overtly stated, there's an unstated agreement. That's why people like tribal settings. That's what people mean by a social contract. It's not necessarily even written in law, but there's an understanding that this is how it works. For example, when you look at the news in the United States, and there's much ado about nothing with respect to the debt ceiling, you don't pay much attention because you expect them to do a big dance on cable networks about the risk of the debt ceiling, but you count on them to get it done because you in violation of the gospel, put your trust in the princes and sons of men. You expect predictability 
because you worship money. So you count on them not to break the debt ceiling agreement. And you go out your business and you buy your coffee and you go to your job and you eat your steak <laughs> like the guy in the Matrix film who was a metaphor for Satan. And you're fine just believing it's a juicy steak <laughs> even though you know you're plugged into the Matrix. That is false trust. Scripture is challenging you to place your trust in something that takes away your control and your security. It's a different kind of trust. That too is a tension here in the genealogy. The son of Malia, the son of Menna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. This first name, Richard, Malia, we were just discussing it. It's from the Hebrew root Malay, which means full. The second term, you were a bit frustrated this morning. I'm going to step back and let you talk about it because I've never seen anyone emote so forcefully about the stupidity of dictionaries. This one really was frustrating to me because I want you to show your work. I'm an, I'm an old professor <laughs> here, and what you see in every dictionary, literally, that I looked at, I looked at about five or six different dictionaries, it's mena in Greek, and they say it comes from a Hebrew root and it means soothsayer or enchanted, but then they don't say what Hebrew root they base that etymology on. There's another variant in some manuscripts you see mainan instead of mena. It's possibly related to a Hebrew word mina, meaning summon, but mana can also mean count. It's a little bit difficult to say, so that one's a tough one. Everyone agrees it comes from some Hebrew root, but no one will go out on a limb and say which Hebrew root, so that one drove me a bit crazy. But this goes to show also that you know there's a certain kind of knowledge that can get lost when it's assumed. We do see the lineage, though, like if we say enchanted or soothsayer, maybe it has something to do with this son of Matatha being the product of soothsaying. That's why they have the child, or maybe it's someone who is able to do soothsaying. Sometimes we see that from the context, the name becomes clearer and the meaning of the word becomes clearer. We have Matatha, which is the fifth time we have this Matathias that relates to the gift. And then we have Natham. In Greek, it's Natham instead of Natan. Significantly, then you have Natham, which comes from the root Nata, meaning give, and you have Matatha, which also comes from the root Natan, meaning give. Matathias and Natham, right next to each other, the father and the son in this case. And then this Natham, Nathan, is not the son of David that we have in Matthew. In Matthew, the line goes through Solomon, but here it goes through this Natham. And that's where we get this divergence in genealogies in Luke and Matthew. It's at this point, who is carrying on the line of David? David, of course, means beloved or friend. It's David the king. We often assume, because we have an incorrect premise in our minds that we bring to the text, that David is the beloved of God or the friend of God. But as Father Paul taught us vigorously in the rise of Scripture, 
David functioned one way when he was a shepherd, but in an entirely different way when he became a king. When he functioned as a shepherd, which is the correct mode of behavior for a human being in the eyes of the scriptural God in the Old Testament, it could be said that he was the beloved of God. But when he rose to the position of king, he functioned in an entirely offensive way in the eyes of the scriptural God. So this name beloved, in effect, changed its functional value in God's eyes in the biblical story. David became the beloved of the people when he became a king. And as the beloved of the people, he became their abuser. In order to provide the security that the people want, in order to become trustworthy in the eyes of the people, in order to be the reflection of the image of the people, you know that person that the people could identify with? They're Obama, they're Biden, they're Trump. And I put all three names on the same level in the same list. And you can add Putin and Zelensky if you want. All your gods are your gods. In order for the people to find a God in their image that is predictable and trustworthy, in order for them to have their beloved, they had to make David in their image, someone predictable, someone that would provide what they're asking for. That's what Saul meant. Now, Saul isn't in the genealogy because he's not included in the divine kingly lineage. But that's not the point. The point is they asked for Saul and they also wanted David. That's what people want. And you can trust David and you will get what you asked for. You will get a return on the investment in which you place your trust in the scriptural story. And it's predictable. The result, the outcome is predictable. You will end up with Herod's boot on your neck if you trust David, your beloved. Or you can trust the voice of the shepherd, which still abides in the wilderness in the story of the Gospel of Luke, on the lips of John the Baptist outside of Jerusalem, despite the fact that David betrayed. And in fact, David is being redeemed in the words of John the Baptist in the wilderness, who heralds the coming of Jesus Christ, who liberates us from the boot and the oppression of Herod. But once again, it's not some kind of military conquest which is what you want to place your trust in so that you can buy a plot of land and build a house and put a fence around it and defend your territory. No. It's a voice. It's a teaching that you can't control. And it's a voice that could turn on you and will turn on you. But it still is inviting you to place your trust in it. And it will provide for you on its terms not in the way that reflects your image and your desire and the things that you want. We can see how much 
every human being wants that stability, wants that predictability. Even in the United States, where we always want the next best thing, where it's a meritocracy and we want to find the best person. If that's the case, explain to me the Kennedys, the Bushes, the Clintons. It's generation after generation of the same old thing. We got head of the CIA, who then became a vice president, who became a president, and then his son became a governor, and another son became a governor, and then one of his sons became a president. We had a president whose brother became a senator, and his other brother became a presidential candidate. This is how it works, because every marketer knows that if you throw something brand new at people, they'll reject it. And guess what God did in this chapter in chapter three. He showed how human beings want predictability. There's gift after gift. There's fullness after fullness. And in the end, there's just not a big variety to choose from because it's human beings. I work at a corporation of tens of thousands of people, and there's only so many varieties of humans you're going to find on the floor. That's just how human beings are. And God says, you know what? Here's your human genealogy. And guess what? I'm going to go a different way. Jesus is my guy. Jesus is my son. Jesus is going to inherit. Not this whole line of inheritance that you guys came up with. I'm not buying it. This is my guy. And you guys can keep picking the same guy after the same guy. I warned you since Saul, and Saul, his name significantly means the one who was asked for. I gave you what you asked for, and you ended up with the same old thing every time. And I'm breaking the chain, and this is Jesus, and you're going to have a hard time accepting him because he's a new thing, he's not predictable, and he's not going to do your will. He's going to do my will, and that's who you have to follow. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.